<laughs> What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in once again to the Unofficial Therapy Podcast. This is Chris Kane. I have my girl, Jaren, on the show today. What's up, Jaren? Hey, what's up? Okay, I thought you'd give me more enthusiasm than that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, hi. Like, okay. Gave me so much in a pre-show meeting, and now it's just like all it's like... It's going to unfold. Just let it happen. It's gonna, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to hop into some really deep topics today, so maybe I don't need all this zest on the front end when you get into your conversations i want that to like flow so tell the people uh you're a teacher so you're an educator i like the word teacher it sounds whatever you're an educator uh <laughs> tell the people what you i guess teach on and kind of what your mentality on that stuff is yeah so i've been teaching for six years now and high school students um ninth through 12th grade really but the last few years focusing on juniors and the class that I have been teaching is social justice. Um, really a topic that I got interested in through like my master's program, undergrad and master's program. Uh, when talking about issues of like power, privilege of, you know, um, sexism, racism, learning about political theory, and the list really goes on. Um, but I think it's really important at this age to really discuss these issues because my students are so bright. And I think I went to public school, but, and I, I teach at a prep school right now. I think my mindset going into college to a predominantly like white upper middle class undergrad, um, maybe I would have been better prepared to engage in those types of like white circles. And this is something I'm kind of still uh, like understanding for myself and deconstructing for myself, that whole experience that happened so long ago, but it's still kind of like with me in a lot of ways. So I think that the topics of social justice interest young people and that they have a lot to say. Um, I think it's interesting to see how TikTok is like a platform that they use to mobilize and how people were tying TikTok and those circles to the Trump rally that was underrepresented in the ways that they expected his campaign and his people yeah. expected. So um, it's an, I think they have a voice and it, it's important to educate them and get them talking on these issues as well. So like when you're actually like in the throes of teaching, I know now you're doing Zoom teaching, so it's kind of like whatever, but before this recent movement, was is a, is a classroom set up to be like Q&A? Is it debate style? Is it like projects on historical figures? Like how does the class go? Because I never took a social justice class. Mm -hmm. I just lived my life as a black dude. <laughs> so like, <laughs> so like, and how's the class? And you for justice every day. Yeah, hey, it's, I, it's rough I would here. say, <laughs> I would say that I, I'm still doing my best to develop the curriculum. Um, but I incorporate different types of like pedagogy. So we have some debates on like, we'll pick hot button topics and we'll have some debates. We'll also do like the Socratic method where it's a, like, you know, several course, questions yeah. and we're kind of just to try to unfold and like raise the consciousness of the group. I really like having um, team led, like student led discussions. So sure. like on topics about the family or about workers rights or whatever issue, environmental issues, they get like a piece of reading 
that they have to kind of like provide a thesis, but then they also lead the questions and then uh, provide an article for the rest of the class to discuss. And I found that those classes have been um, really um, engaging and the students are willing to like actually speak. Um, and for me, I think I that they're gonna remember from the class, but I hope that they can like learn to use their voice and especially for the young women in a classroom, I think it gets worse as you move to higher education, but for young women to learn to use their voice, even when they're disagreeing with others is really important. Like I never really learned that skill until later. And I, you know, I think professional women would say they still struggle with that now. So um, that's the goal, one of the goals. I was gonna say, so because social justice is such a like a wide ranging topic, I know your job is to cultivate and to lead and guide. Do you have like, because you're a woman and you're highly educated and all that, is your, not bias, but maybe for lack of a better term, towards getting women to like feel more empowered, to speak their mind more, to see you maybe at some level of a, a beacon, but something like to aspire to, or to just general, we want them to just have discourse and kind of talk it out because they don't have other platforms or other curriculum that do that. Yeah, I would say it's a combination of both and traditional education, not that I can really, I don't have the freedom to completely break away from that because of our school system, sure. um, but doesn't always foster student voice and curiosity. Um, and so I would say that I hope to be an example in some ways for them, um, but also for them to see and to value their identity and their ideas to promote their voices. And that's not just women, it's also the young men too. Like I also coach basketball um, and, and I've coached the freshman JV, but then now I'm on the, one of the varsity assistant coaches. And so to get the boys to, to be able to respect me as um, a coach and like a mentor and to be able to work in a healthy, with a healthy relationship with someone who is a woman um, and not have any type of, you know, sexist preconceived ideas that develop really during this age. Right. So like, how has that experience been for you? I know like you're talking about like, what your goal is to like cultivate them, but I've been in high school a long, long, long time ago. And if I'm 17, you know, I'm, I can dunk. I got, I got a good 30 footer and I see, you know, coach B walking up. I know like, the initial thing is, oh, we not only do we have a female coach, but okay, she, she, I right. like, <laughs> how do you, have you had any interactions where you had to like, Hey, like check people or do you have like, the head coach do it? Like, how do you navigate that, that water? Yeah. I would say my first year coaching and teaching was at an all boys school. Mm. And that was certainly um, a challenge because I was teaching seniors and they, I was younger even at that time. And I don't look, I still could be, you know, yeah. seen as like you really a, young. You're 14, you know, basically. I just look young. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it was a challenge in a lot of ways. Uh, I have a pretty strong personality and I can be a hard ass. So I think you have to have boundaries. You have to be clear with your communication. Um, 
that's really important for boys, all teenagers, but like for boys, especially. So there were a few times where like some of the players or some of the boys would just kind of push, you know, push a little bit to see, and you really have to, (laughs) you got to crack the (laughs) some way and uh, set the boundaries. But, um, you know, I, I feel like for my players, when they're dealing with whatever, something with their family or when they're dealing with uh, girl problems, friend problems, play, you know, basketball problems, like they're not performing or they're not getting the playing time that they want. My classroom is an open space for them to like decompress, hang out, talk about whatever they want to talk about. And, you know, I just like, I just listen to them. I, I, I think being one of the few faculty of color at school. Um, Not all my players are of color. You know, we have a lot of white kids at the school too. Um, But I think it, it can be a space for them that they find um, is more comfortable for them at school, after school, whenever. So you touched on something that I wanted to segue into. So I appreciate you being a good uh, interview. You talked about being (laughs) a faculty member of color and we're gonna take that part. So that's gonna be one question. How does it feel, especially in this day and age where not only are you a woman, but you're also a woman of color. Add that to the fact that it seems like from my vantage point that for some reason we don't lump Asian people in the category of people of color or minorities. It's white, Hispanic, black, and then it's like everybody else. So Mm. let's, we can start with the faculty member of color thing. And then you can talk about your experience um, as an Asian woman. Yeah, I would say um, undergrad, graduate school, and the school I had, the two schools that I've taught at, um, all predominantly like white, upper middle class population. Um, And I've learned to assimilate just like many Asian Americans have. Um, and also, you know, I, I would prefer the acronym BIPOC. Okay. What is, can you break that down for people? I think it's more accurate. Um, yeah, I think it's breaking up a little bit. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so BIPOC would be um, Black, Indigenous, People of Color. So mm. to be able to identify and not just lump all people of color into one group but to see that at least in this country in the united states um the black communities and black history is different from native history and communities and also people of color um and that even within that people of color even asian american history varies drastically um so i would say as a faculty member i have been forced to assimilate in a lot of ways. Um, And, and uh, it's odd too, because, you know, you have these experiences of tokenism. You have these also these experiences where uh, your inputs are not heard or received well, if it's presented in a certain way. Um, I'm sure other people can, you know, but have the same experiences in other sectors of life. Um, Language has to be different. And when you're talking to families and you're talking to 
especially on the, I, you know, the ideas of social justice, obviously in a classroom, there needs to be space for multiple points of view and perspective. Like, I feel like that's part of the, the moving in process of education. Um, but some parents want to censor what we talk about in class. They don't want their student, you know, their son or daughter or them to um, become uh, indoctrinated, you can say, on certain topics that their family views do not necessarily align with. And that can be either progressive or conservative, either or. Um, I've seen it, I think, from both political parties, we could say. So as a faculty member of color, um, it, it's interesting to be in a workplace where uh, not only do the students not reflect um, my, like me, like there's very little Philippine X like students and there used to be more before. Um, there's a few other Filipino faculty members, but for the most part, it's predominantly white and it's, it's a tough space to manage, I think, for for everyone, aside from those who well, don't why? see it. <laughs> oh, I was like, aside from those who are, you know, we have, I got it, I was like, yeah. It, it, is, it is predominantly those who are white, but it's also, it's also the, the people of color who, who haven't undergone the like liberating process themselves, mm -hmm. because gotcha. they can also, I think, perpetuate white supremacy in different ways that they don't understand or discrimination and it's and it could be even for their own ethnicity or for another you know minority group um and so that's why i was like hesitant to name it because i think yeah. a lot of people fit under that i think you're right and i think this is not just teaching i think this is in the workplace we see it i see it this is the way that i see that playing itself out is it's used as those people who haven't been liberated, who haven't fully delved into themselves. There may be some level of just ignorance and maybe some level of self-hate. It's hard to know which one is which, but for the ones that are willing, they can be weaponized by the groups who don't want to see difference and change in color and prejudice, what have you. And they use those people as, let's say, male version of you. Some male juju guy who's like, I don't know why we don't need an Asian Appreciation Month, yada, yada, yada. And then they, then they can use that as they see. Like, so the ones who are calling for that equality, that representation, they're the problem. Because we have people like yeah. this guy who don't think we need it. Just like there's black people who say, well, we don't need quotas and any form of reparations. 100%, like, yeah. Yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then we put that person on TV and say, see, look at that person. Why don't you yeah. be more like this person who said, you know, I went to an Ivy League school. I didn't have any help from anybody. And then obviously that's whatever. But that's how I see that playing itself out. I'm not, I don't work in a structured environment like you do. So I don't have to, I'm in the gym. I'm all over the place. But when I see it play itself out on TV, that's what I see is, it's like, it's a, like it's a form of tokenism almost, where it's like we find the one or two that reinforce our belief and then we like go with it. Yeah, 100%. I, I would say that this summer, since, you know, I'm teaching summer school, so I have a little bit of time away from the classroom during this time. Um, I would say that I'm doing more reading on ethnic studies and 
trying to understand the history of Asian Americans. Um, but you asked me about, you know, like why do a lot of people not associate Asians or Asian Americans as a part of people of color? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that there's, it's a really complex answer. I'm certainly not an expert on it, but just like my own opinion, um, I say, I would say that it has to do with the idea of like being a, uh, the model minority in a lot of ways. Um, I would have to look back at like the dating of these kind of phrases, but it's the idea that like Asian Americans are, you know, they work hard and they um, are able to progress in you know, higher education in the workplace, they don't complain, they keep their heads down. And look, see, like they're, they're the model minority. And really, a lot of that language, while I think, you know, my parents and other um, immigrants who have really tried their best to work hard and to try to, you know, establish something for future generations, that kind of language does serve them in some ways um, but at also at the same time it is really used to co-op white supremacy and that same language is used for anti-blackness and anti-black ideas as well gotcha. so um, it's something i'm still trying to unpack for myself but i would you know i would identify it as a myth as it is um, and that Asian American history and Asian Americans today also face discrimination, um, not at the same level as other groups do. And, it, and it, it's different because the histories are different. Um, but there's, there has a lot, there needs to be a lot of work done within our families, within our, you know, like our community centers and our churches to like really start a, a, a real conversation about it. I know people are doing it, but, um, I'm happy that this conversation or the movement of Black Lives Matter is encouraging different ethnic groups um, to also look internally to see how they can be allies, but then also really decolonize their own communities too. I think you're touching on a big part. I think I like that you brought that up, the model minority thing. I never heard that concept before. As you explained it, it immediately made sense as to how it could be used as a weapon. It's like. You guys said we've been oppressing you, but you know we oppressed the Japanese in the 40s and 50s, and now look at them like they got over it. You guys, that was 400 years ago. Let it go, and it's like mm -hmm. it's bigging the Asian community up, but it's also at the detriment of Hispanics and Blacks, and it's not the similar experience. And it's against perceptions and all that. Like it's like you said, it's deep. It's a deep. It's a deep thing, and. I like that you yeah. called it a myth too. Like it's, it's yeah, not it, my culture. It, it is. I think that kind of language is just to promote a racial hierarchy that people are at the top and other people move down from there. And the darker your skin is, the less human you are, the less valuable you are. And it's just all language and all of these ideas that it on the surface may not seem racist but they are like that but that's like, just that's all they are it's like all lives matter is one of those things that on the surface seems say like that as well <laughs> that seems like unimpeachable in space well. it's like like what are you guys mad i'm just saying all lives it's like this is something and 
I can, I'm the black people, whatever. My family is Caribbean and like American black. So like, but we still say we're black, whatever. So like, I'm, I know we're not a monolith and I know within the American black, there's all types of like iterations and stuff. But from our experience, from people I talk to and from uh, black Twitter <laughs> and other like reputable black sources, that communication thing is like that subliminal communication that we've, are aware of so when we point it out people who don't want to see it as subliminal communication say what do you mean all lives matters anti you guys like we're just saying that everybody matters and it's like that that's the most like hot button one like you say that and the mob is coming now at one point people will just yeah we all should have equal rights yeah all lives are good like it's that's but now that's seen as divisive because it sounds inclusionary but what it is is like we're not going to give your movement, the credence it deserves. We're gonna to try to like pull you into the fold of America, even though we haven't really done that historically as a country. And 100%. try to like wash our hands of it. That's the whole like Devil Sweeney thing where he was trying to like get that off. And he's in South Carolina, so you know that's not too far from where I'm from. I understand what is where he where he's from, that plays well. So like in his mm-hmm. community, it wasn't people coming at him, it's the fact that it got to the internet. And then that and then it got spread and then people are like hey wait a minute dad boy he's like oh I, you hear what i said nah it's not like that he tried to like walk it back but like in his area in clemson south carolina he's playing it like he's chilling yeah it doesn't work yeah everywhere else and so mm-hmm. but there's a lot of that that communication happens that, in a lot of ways yeah yeah i yeah it's and to your point about people being exposed on individual you know individuals are being exposed I was just looking at, I think her name is Connie. Oh, I wish I could find it. Starts with Her last name starts with a B. And um, she was part of a school board attempting to rename a school. And, and she was shopping online during the school board meeting. And she's being called out on local television for oh, what I've she's doing. Yeah. Have you seen it? I've yeah. seen a video. That dude goes in. And then, you know, all these, we get, we're calling them Karens now. These people. And I think it's just, you know, a lot of misconceptions about what we're doing, lack of, um, lack of understanding about what the movement really stands for, lack of acknowledgement to, of policies that are really the issue, aside from just like overt racist people. It's also the policies that make our society racist that we're unwilling to identify with. I really like um, Ibram Kendi and his, his books, his writing. I've like read him before, but I'm rereading and then reading some new content from him. He's just brilliant. I feel like um, his language is really clear and it just helps people understand like, you know, to be racist is not, he and he goes on to talk about it and how to be anti-racist but he says that it's a descriptive term and people can be racist at any moment you can also be anti-racist and that's something that you continue to pursue on you know in, in all of your language and all of your actions um so it's just uh it's frustrating to you know like talking to my family, talking to friends. It's, it's inspiring because there's a lot of allies, I think, in California. Yeah, we're in a good um, place. <laughs> and, uh, and also, it's, 
it's a it's a tough place to be when like my close black friends um and people that i know are experiencing this trauma it's traumatic that that they have to see every day they have to experience every day and that they not necessarily have a language for what they've experienced because not everybody is an expert on race political theory and they i'm sure i don't have to tell you like (laughs) it's a tough it's a tough space where i want to be someone who is compassionate and learning and doing my best um but that's you know i don't know if i'm always doing that well listen you're in pursuit of it i this is the way i think about it and i try to think deeply about things that matter i don't even use twitter because i already know what that is like you can't say anything it's like i love all people what <laughs> they go, like yeah. that's not we're not here for that no, i don't have twitter i have a twitter but i don't use it i just i'm just trying to update myself <laughs> so, but um so this is this is my thinking on it and i i think you can't separate race religion and politics from each other i think they're all like interconnected even though like yeah, i agree there's a separation of church and state whatever in real life they are interconnected. And my theory on this, and I don't, you know, I can't substantiate this, it just makes sense to me, is that 80% of people are entrenched on their sides of whatever the issue is. So I'll give a good example, or a regular example. If there's any kind of shooting in this country, not even like police, I mean like, you know, someone shoots at school, for instance. 40% of people immediately say gun control, 40% of people say, that person was, you know, has a mental issue, we need more guns in the school. And there's 20% in the middle that can go either way, right? And I think that same thing happens with candidates. Like, no matter how bad, you know, Hillary was for a lot of Democrats, it was like, I'm a Democrat, so I'll do that. So 40% just went with her immediately. And then the same thing with Trump, people were like, well, he's not really a Republican, but I'll still go with him. And then 20% in the middle were like, well, I voted for Obama last time and you know, I didn't get what I wanted, so maybe I'll go this way. And some people were like, well, I really don't like him, so I'll, and I'll, they'll do that whole thing. When we're having these conversations about race and about racism and about systemic whatever, I think most people already are where they are. They're not trying to hear it. And we have a confirmation bias in how we look for information. Even COVID, if you don't think COVID is real, you'll find every article that says it's not real. Mm-hmm. If you think it's real, you'll find every article that says, 400,000 cases a day and you'll be hysterical. And there's 20% of people in the middle who are like, well, in my immediate friend and family group, only one person got sick. So I don't know how real it is, but you're waiting Mm -hmm. to hear real information to sway you either way. So when it comes to these conversations, I don't think most people are persuadable. I think really it's just 20%. I think there's 40% of people based on where you're raised, based on how they are, based on superiority, based on fear. I think fear drives a lot of it. And no matter how many cases you show of people being choked out, shot in the back, like unequal treatment or whatever, or you can do all the his- systemic Jim Crow, like the Tulsa, Red. whatever. All, no matter how much you show them, they're Fine. just like, I still believe Over what I believe. No, they, they say, I see, all what you, I see what you're showing me. Thank you for all the information. I believe what I believe. <laughs> I believe that this is fraudulent. And there's 40% of people who... You know, even if you show them not every situation is race, is necessarily racist or whatever, whatever, they'll still see it in that. And so the conversation really is how do we sway at 20%? And if we can get 
11% of that 20% of your favorite and you got the majority. And that's, <laughs> and that's kind of how elections are won. And that's really how conversations are won. Like they didn't want to change the flag in Mississippi. And then they started messing with football and then football leads to money. And then once football mm-hmm. and money kind of got in play, then people were like, well, even if I don't believe this, I do like money. I like football. So then it's like, they just sway this way. And I think that's the conversation is that 20%. I think all of them are at 20%. And so people who are reaching out to you and me and people of my ilk who were like, I didn't know. Oh my God, give me more information. They were in that 20% in the middle. who didn't have an allegiance. They were just kind of living life, being blissful. And then they saw this and they hit something and then hit something. And they said, Oh, I got to know what's going on. And now they're asking questions. Hmm. And that's the people we're trying to sway. In that. So the people that are asking questions, let's say, good-willed people mm-hmm. who have been ignoring systemic oppression, who have been ignoring their microaggressions, mm-hmm. they turn to you right. as a black man. Do you feel energized by their willingness to engage or like their, you know, ability to like humble themselves and be open or would you rather them self-educate and not put the pressure on the black community. I mean, I just feel like I've uh-huh. talked to my different black friends and it's kind of like, We're it kind of depends monolith, on yeah. who it is. Yeah. I am, I'm in a camp of, if you have a question, ask it. But also do your research. I'm a very nuanced person. I don't, I don't have extreme views on most things. Um, mm-hmm. if, I have, if I have an extreme view, it's, it's, there's a lot of education that went into it or a whole lot of thinking and I just got to that point. Generally, yeah. like I'm, I'm pretty nuanced about everything. I can believe like I'm a Christian, but I also don't think every religion is irrelevant. Like I you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's ways to kind of do all that stuff. In this situation, I don't like people like tiptoeing around me because they don't want to ask a question. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not the type of stereotypical aggressive black dude who's going to like put hands on you for like possibly asking the, the right question the wrong way. I'm not that dude. Like I'm in, I like to believe I'm an educated dude. I'm good with my words. I'll listen to what you have to say and I'm meter with my responses. So ask me a question. If I don't know the answer, look it up. We have unlimited resources to look stuff up. So I'm on that side and you know, ask the question. And some most people questions people ask me are questions about my experience. So it's not something they can look up anyway. Because my experience is different from maybe a, a black dude from Santa Monica, just because of where I'm from. Like I tell people all the time, when the city I grew up in, it was pretty much either people are black or they're white. I remember the first time we had an Hispanic person in my school, I was like, what's going on? <laughs> who is that? <laughs> like, who, what's your last name? It had a little, like, I don't know. The, the, Hernandez, the Enye. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I don't know. what was. I was, I was like seven or eight, and I was like, what is this? Like, it, was, it threw yeah. me off because it wasn't a thing. Uh-huh. It wasn't until I got to middle school that I finally started, like, seeing some crossover. Right. So I know what it's like. There's a kind of a black part of town. There's kind of a white part of town. And there's a couple intermingling spots, but it was always a, like a unease, whatever. And we kind of just did what we did. I didn't come up in California where there's Jews next to, you know, Lebanese next to, you know, I didn't, I didn't live that life. So I don't have those experiences. So I don't have those preconceptions, I guess. So ask the questions. My experience is my experience. It's anecdotal. I can tell you what my family's experiences are. And, you know, and experiences, and that's what I have to go on. 
I know what I believe. I know what I see. And that's kind of how I move. Also do yeah. your research, people, because there's a lot of stuff out there. People are like, I didn't even know about, you know, some people don't even know like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil and the Civil Rights Act. And this is like during their parents' lifetime. Yeah. And this is not like if you don't know about Juneteenth, which I guess whatever, we don't teach it in school really. So like maybe I could yeah, say you don't know that. Well, you should know about LBJ's administration. Like that's mm-hmm. a pretty big deal. Yeah. Like, that's, like that's something you shouldn't know. That's during MLK's time. So like that kind of stuff is like, how do you not know that unless you just really weren't trying to know? But, you know. Well, and it's just, I think the education can be done better, just like every other industry could always do better. And um, in a lot of ways, it needs to be reinvented and there needs to be innovation also. Um, so it's, it's uh, everyone needs to do better, I think. I would say, I would say, it's, it's interesting to hear your response and like some of my other friends' responses um, to that question about being like, you know, asking BIPOC to tell white people or white culture or people of power what their experiences are and like how to fix it. Right. And you, we started the conversation as, you know, like talking about my experience as a faculty member right. and um this summer when outraged by our black families about a few things that our administration did wrong and um you know i was part of a small group who wrote a faculty letter on behalf of our uh, faculty and staff and then there were other letters that were put out to express solidarity to identify the unjust killings um you know, and I even wrote a letter to my students, but it's, it's, I think it's also frustrating for people who put themselves out there, they're expressing these ideas, and then it's not always met, met with acceptance or, um, you know, like, it's like used for certain reasons that the administration wants to, but if donors are not happy, if, 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 uh, you know, wealthy families are not happy with some of the language with our decisions, then, you know, um, then it's kind of, it has to be left out. Like the school doesn't want to be too political. And right. I, I wouldn't say that's just my, like the high school I teach at. I think it's a problem that we're going to see with a lot of institutions, not just schools, but definitely a lot of institutions. Again, they're going to need to really grapple with the issues that they have within their own institutions and their small groups. I think this, your answer leads me to like two, I don't know the diverging points, but they're just, I think they're different. One is money is always the most important in every situation. Like even with this COVID response, with schooling, with what you can wear at work, what you can promote on social media. Yeah. If it, if it, if it hinders the money, it's gonna be snuffed out. I, I believe very strongly just because it makes sense. A lot of groups got behind the movement because they knew they can make money from it. And so it's, it's like when that, it's like when Nike, it's like when Nike defended Kaepernick initially and started selling his jersey, they sold out in a day. So they're like, Oh, we stand with Kaepernick. I'm like, yeah, maybe, but also there's a lot of money to be made here. Yeah. Because and would- what kind of, what do you need to change within your leadership teams and right. your hiring processes that you're not looking at? It's all superficial. Right. 
So like when I know the money thing, and I'm sure you got the emails from all these companies over the two week span of this is how we stand with black people. These are our right. new practices. We've made a new initiative board. I'm like, this company has been mm -hmm. around for 120 years. What do you mean you just yeah. now have a board of diverse mm -hmm. people? Like, <laughs> where was this before? Like this exact moment. And it was more like, you know, we're, tr we're trying guys. Like I want you to know that we're trying because you didn't post something that people naturally assume you were against it. Right. So like now right. that loses money for you by not coming out for it. So people were saying, there's companies that waited two weeks to put a, a, a statement out. The statement was three sentences long. And like, it took you two weeks to come up with when you believe all people should be free, yada, yada, yada. Thank you for your time. Like, that was just, that's a, that's a band-aid. You're trying to placate the masses. So yeah, that's, that's that part of it. Um, the other part of it is the way power works from what I've read and deduced is that People never see the power unless it's the people of their own kin, their own bloodline or what have you. Like you can look through history. People aren't like, hey, I know I'm the king, but I'm cool on this. Here you go. <laughs> it's like they'll give it to like their child or it's yeah. like their, their brother, like in the king's speech or whatever. But mm -hmm. like, it's not something that people want to give away. And there's a thought that there's a thought that if you gain more power as someone who doesn't have the power that comes at my expense. And so it's not always racial. It's not always sexist. It's not whatever. I think the real motivation for a lot of it is we like the power. And everybody likes the power. Any group that's been in power from all these dynasties, from the Ming dynasty, you can go down the line. Like, people with, when you're in power, you tend to want to acquire more. You want to expand your reach because you want to make sure your tribe, your thought pattern, what have you, is more dominant. Mm -hmm. And so these companies outside of the money thing don't have an incentive to want to be more woman inclusive, to be more BIPOC inclusive and whatever, because it comes at their expense at some level. And a mm -hmm. very small example, but something I thought about a couple of days ago was at one point, they didn't allow black people to be quarterbacks in the NFL. Their reasoning back then was they don't have the intellect to comprehend a playbook and have to be the leader of the team. Fine. You can look this up, people, but this is well documented. Um, so Warren Moon, who's a Hall of Famer now, end up playing in Canada and then eventually they let him play for the Oilers and you know he became a Hall of Famer. But he lost years he would have had an NFL because he just wouldn't let him play. Mm -hmm. But if you look at that NFL at probably his prime. Yeah, really his he prime. He's younger. Exactly. But if you look at the NFL landscape now, and I was going through the names, mm -hmm. there's like twelve NFL quarterbacks that are either black or biracial. And of the MVP candidates last year, like Lamar won, Patrick Mahomes was two, Russell Wilson was three. Mm -hmm. And like Deshaun Watson was four and that was five. So like mm -hmm. of the five MVP candidates last year, they were all were black or mixed. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and I was looking at the landscape for next year's draft with Justin Fields and whatever. We're a year or two away from literally half the quarterbacks in the league being black or co of color. And that's within like a 25 year span where it went from zero to like half. And, and it's so, so long overdue. Yeah. But I, but my point is, as I get now that I'm seeing this happen, I get it why you would, on some level, not that I'm agreeing with it because dumb, I get why you would try to suppress it because the idea is once mm -hmm. you get someone who's that athletic and that leadership savvy and someone who wins that much at that position, every team, this is a, this is a monkey see, monkey do kind of league, right? Like if you, 
people saw Lamar Jackson running, so then they drafted Jalen Hurts to be Philadelphia's backup, and he might be their starter at some point. And then yeah. people, more people want what they see. Like Russell Wilson can get out of trouble. He can throw a 50-yard dime. They want more dual-threat situations like Cam Newton's with the Patriots now because they're like, we can do more with our offense. We can actually run mm-hmm. and do more stuff. It's a, but what's going to happen at some point is going to be 20 black quarterbacks in the league and 10 white ones. And then at some point, maybe 25 and five. And it may just get to a point where it's like basketball, where except for like maybe Dallas that has Luka, basically every team's best player in basketball is a black dude. Mm-hmm. And so it's, but if you're a white person, that comes at your expense, even though if you're the owner, you're making all types of money. So you're like, hey, LeBron, that's 300 more million in my pocket. But those days of Larry Bird being MVP, those days are like, those days are done. Like Luka's the closest thing to that. And he won't win MVP as long as, LeBron, KD, like James, and those guys are healthy. Because it, it will just, be a while. It will be a while. He's coming in at. He's still young though. He's twenty. I'm a, I'm a big Luca fan. I'm just it, saying, like he's, he's. He's pretty solid. I'm a big Luca fan. I think he's great. I'm saying. He's got to be greater, than the top no, five guys. That's his, that's his issue. It's not his. He's a, he's already an all star at 19, 20 years old. The problem yeah. is he's compared to LeBron, Kawhi, KD, Steph. Like Dame and all would, those guys. And that's his problem. I would say too, it's it. Your point about power is definitely. I would agree with that. Um, I would also say that when space is made for other people, the culture changes too. Yeah. And when the culture starts to shift and change, then people start to question. People start to change their practices. Like you even mentioned, talking about maybe the game the quarterback game changing and evolving from yeah. what it is. And so that that's what happens when there's new space for different people from different cultures, different experiences with their talents. And that's threatening as well. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of, it's a deep conversation because it's almost like the investment philosophy where in the short term, you're not going to see the results of it. The long term, you get all the rewards from it. Right. So, in the moment, changing culture does culture takes time to develop over like it's, it doesn't just happen instantaneously. You can put the best like Greg Popovich is a great coach, but he would have to go to a team for probably a year or two to get the culture he wants to get. He has to get some players mm-hmm. out, draft some guys he wants in. They have to see him win, then buy into it. Yeah. Like 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 Eric, Eric Spolstra is a good example, right? Down in Miami. Like Eric Spolstra is a Pat Riley disciple. Pat Riley mm-hmm. earned his stripes in the eighties. But right. Spolstra was just like his guy. So mm-hmm. no one knew who he was. Like he didn't have LeBron and Wade's respect at first. And mm-hmm. then they lost the first finals. Then they got and won the second finals. Then by the third year, it was like, oh, Spolstra's a good coach. Now it's 10 years removed from that. And he's seen as one of the, like, the better coaches. Yeah. Because he has like, he, he has his credibility is where it is now. With mm-hmm. culture and these companies and businesses, like the idea of having more women and other people of color in the room is that, in the short term, it's, it's friction because it's like these old, probably white ideas juxtaposed with these newer, more, you know, diverse. liberal type ideas. Yeah, diverse yeah. ideas. And it's like, those are doing this. It's like, well, we've always done it this way. And it's like, well, maybe it's time to do it this way. And no one wants to change the status quo or the status quo benefits him. So like the idea of, all right, let's try this new thing, even though it's always been working pretty well for me up to this point. Like, why would I change it? But over time, it's going to lead to better results. It's better ideas. It's better leadership, better vision, more inclusivity, a happier work environment. 
And that has long-term effects. But in the short term, if you're the CEO in the moment, you want your ideas to be passed down the line. You don't want other people being like, hey, have you tried this? I'm the CEO. We're making money. I'm good where I am. And yeah. so that's the, that's the friction. But long-term, yeah, you end up having better run companies, happier people, a better product because you don't do what Snapchat did where they posted a Juneteenth filter where you had chains on your wrists and they were like, <laughs> because there was nobody in the room. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I had Snapchat. It. I deleted it, but wow, that's, that's awful. Well, that's, they, like, the thing was you had chains on your wrists and if you smiled, the chains would break. That was their thing. And they claimed that that was a prototype that got leaked and it wasn't really a thing, yada, yada. The fact that that was even being considered tells you who's in the room. Yeah, 100%. That takes, that takes one person of color to be like, hey, wait a minute. No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> let's not do that. Let's, hey, I, let's, let's, no, let's throw that one out. <laughs> hey, color me crazy. How about, no. Why don't we do anything other than that? <laughs> how about anything else why don't we just have a filter that says happy juneteenth and we just post it and people yeah, can put that behind their that's like it. that's all that's we need it. we don't have to be let's, let's be patriotic in that manner yeah but that's the thing because you you know who was in the room because yeah. they that got out that was even being considered and being vetted and, <laughs> because... and, to, and to that point it's, it's a lot of pressure for those who are already in the room mm. who are from a different background you know, different ethnicity, they're part of VIPOC, whatever. It's a lot of a lot of weight on them to try to not just be the voice, but also all of these corrections that they have to make for white culture, for appropriation, for all of these things. And it's not always met, like I said earlier, with like open arms or no. with respect. No. Because you go, you're flying in the face. It's almost like trying to change a tradition. That's really the best way to describe it. Yeah. Because traditions are just habits. If you really want to like break our tradition down, it's just like, we've always done this. It's just a habit. Like when we win a football game, we go downtown and throw toilet paper on trees and stuff. Like that's just a, a habit. You can easily not do that. Like it doesn't change the win. The win is the game. The game is the win. What you do after that is what's up to you. Like, oh, after we do this, we always like, so tradition is just habit. And you can break a habit in three weeks, right? There's many books on it. People put this into work, into practice. It's not hard to break a habit, like tangibly. Like you understand the steps to break a habit. People don't want to. It mm -hmm. make you, makes you have to change who you are and maybe your own like kind of internal mechanisms and all that stuff. But we can break habits. We can break traditions. But they never happen easily. That's why stopping smoking is hard. That's why cutting back on drinking is hard because it's, there's a habit ingrained in it. You get off work, you need to mm -hmm. pull the cigarette out and you're like, oh, I got to change my habit. So instead of cigarette, let me play some music or let me and you have to kind of rewire the brain yeah and that takes time and if a company has been running a certain way that's kind of a, how a brain has been wired you have to rewire how a company works and really yeah. how the country at large thinks and there's big pockets of the country that don't want to change anything and so it's like one step forward half a step back and we try to so we're progressing but we're doing it at a snail's pace because not everybody's yeah, pushing forward some people are pulling the cart back this way and some are going this way it's like yeah people keeps pulling us back and it's like mm -hmm. that's the meta communication of like what maga is like if you want to like break down that seemingly again innocuous statement but like the meta of that is we have to go back 
to a better time. Which was when? <laughs> like, what was this this fantasy time? You know what I'm saying? So it's all rhetorical, but still really highly effective. Like you were talking about about politics earlier, highly effective, and it's just it's manipulative. It's it's ahistorical. There's no historical facts to really back up. It's just generalized conversations to emote people into doing things based off of fear based off of anxieties whatever whatever it is people do most of the things they do because of fear that's the thing like it's i want to say j cole had a line like i think even the, the reason why people backstab each other so let's say you and i were both actors or whatever and there's a role that's that we're both up for if you feel like if juju gets his role then not only will I not get the role, but there won't be future roles for me. I might be willing to stab you in and back to get the role because I might be a springboard to future roles and I might become rich and famous. Even if I've, I'm fond of you and it's like, I don't want to like tear her down, but I don't want her to get up and then I'm stuck at the bottom. Like you saw it as, listen, we're both talented. She might get this role. I'll get the next one. There's always more roles. There's always more money. There'll be no reason Agreed. to stab you. There'll be no reason to stab you in the back. And it's the fear of a lack of resources in that case. Sometimes yeah. a fear of a loss of money. So that's greed, I guess, comes into that part of it. Sometimes yeah. it's a fear of extinction. Uh, well, extin extinction? Wow, that was, that was a fail. <laughs> oh, that was a rough one. Uh, <laughs> fear of extinction is a real thing where it's like... It's only Wednesday, you know. <laughs> I was just like, hey, stop, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, got, it got halfway through the word and was just like, no, nah, we're not doing this. It's just like, <laughs> the word bailed on me. But that's, that's another thing. And it's like, I think, and I'm not a, a white person, I think at the, the lowest level of a lot of white people's psyche is that they're going to become extinct once we get overrun by more Hispanics, once their offspring co, like has hybrid kids, basically, like us and a white girl and a black dude and like a white son and an Asian daughter, like and yeah. more melanin starts like being proliferated that they're going to mm -hmm. be the minority and that they'll be less powerful and that they yeah. just it's i am baffled by those like neo-nazi sentiments and and just these beliefs that are so pervasive in circles that i would never go to because it's not <laughs> safe for either of us right but i just it baffles me that they are so strongly held with no historical evidence, with no scientific proof, with with nothing really to support it. But like you, like we're talking about fear, you know, greed, and it's just it's baffling. I think the best descript descriptor of this is my favorite South Park episode, um, <laughs> where they're talking about Mexicans coming in the country and taking jobs. And mm -hmm. it's such a the episode overall actually isn't great. The funniest part is they're having these town hall rallies and that South Park yeah. takes place in Colorado. So it's like, you got to get up there. And they're basically saying, listen, they're coming in this country. They're taking our jobs. And then they, they just keep screaming. That's their refrain for the whole episode. But what happens is they get so frothy at the mouth that it goes from they're taking our jobs to burr, burr, burr. they're just them growling at each other. And their kids are at the rally. So the kids are like, yeah, they're taking our jobs. And it's so it's so funny because they just, there's always that one over the top mustache white dude screaming, they're taking our jobs. And 
if you break down like what jobs, like what jobs do you feel like are being taken from? If you like break down what that actually is, it's mm-hmm. like mostly jobs that are paid with cash under the table or low level paying jobs. I don't know too many like illegals coming in the country and be like, I'm going to be CEO of this company because you get vetted too hard. Like mm-hmm. we'll, we'll find your birth certificate. It's like, we're going to just hire you. Like we have to have a social security, like there's whatever. But the episode is my favorite. And to this day, my friends are like, burr, burr, burr. and it's just, they're taking our jobs. It's so stupid. But I think that's the sentiment of a lot of it, where it's just like the fear of they're going to come to this country, take all of our jobs is a real thing. And so when you say put a wall up, that resonates with people because it's like, yeah, keep them out so they don't come and take our jobs because people at the end of the day care about money more than basically everything else. That's what I've always believed that my saying in life, when my mantras is follow the money. You follow the money, things start making sense. Yeah. Like, why, like why are we playing eight games in the NBA before the playoffs so they can get their TV deal money? Why are businesses opening back up? Because we need it to run the economy. Why are we doing this? It's like, there's always, there's money. Why is, why is American Airlines now saying, yeah, we're opening middle seats up. Sorry, because they need more money. Like it's not, they're obviously not more safe, <laughs> but it's, I get, we know this is a risk, but money is more important. And mm-hmm. I honestly wish on some level, and this is in the little political thing I'm writing, I think it's going to be one of the, the, the selling points. I think actually Americans are cool with the truth if you just tell it. People always feel like they're being lied to because advertising yeah. is lying. Commercials are lying. Yeah, everyone's just being all, manipulated out here. We're all being manipulated. You, you have a psychology degree. <laughs> so people are always doing that. So if you just say, hey, man, like when they first did the thing, I think it was back in March, Equinox was still open. And the Surgeon General came on TV and said, wearing a mask will, like wearing a mask actually increases your risk because of blah, 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 blah. I heard it and immediately my BS meter was like flaring. I was like, wait, how's it worse? And then I said to one of the members, I bet you they're running out of masks because people are hysterical and they're buying them up. They're buying them in bulk. And so now hospitals can't afford them. Or mm-hmm. hospital, so there's none for the hospitals who need them the most. And so they're getting on TV saying, hey, don't buy masks. You don't need them. So they can just replenish their stock. And like a couple of weeks ago, he came out and said, yeah, the hospitals are running kind of low. So we had to kind of like, you know, do this. And I was like, I said this two months ago, but if he had just been like, listen, guys, we understand you guys are fearful. You know, there's lots of places to get masks from. You can get them from friends. You can make them yourself. You know, equipment. It's not that hard to sew a mask together, but we need these for nurses and doctors. The people who are protecting your parents and your family members and troops who come from wars. And we need masks to protect our employees. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's limit our orders. Instead of buying 100, buy 10. Like we just, just be honest with people and just see what happens. Like there'll be some people be like, whatever, I'm buying a hundred. Yeah. Those people exist. But I think if you tell people the truth, I think someone would be like, oh yeah, you're right. I really don't travel from my house that often. I don't need a hundred masks right now. <laughs> <laughs> I go from here to maybe the grocery store and back home. Why do I have a closet full of masks? Overspending on groceries. <laughs> right. Yeah. But they, no, instead no. of, instead of being honest, they put a fraudulent report about, oh, you're going to get more sick. And now basically they're making the whole country wear masks. I'm like, but you said two months ago that we shouldn't be, but you just yeah. wanted to get an objective achieved, which I actually agree with the objective. Let's keep our hospitals safe from first. Just say that. Just say it. And you'll get backlash. Like, so you're valuing people in the hospital over my life? Yeah, they're more at risk. I'm sorry. They're on ventilators. Our nursing staffs are working 12-hour shifts. Mm-hmm. You're employed. You're at home. 
I think on some level, yeah, they deserve priority. Yeah. Just say it. And I think you'll be surprised, just like when people do GoFundMes and like when there's like relief for like Red Cross, mm -hmm. people give a surprising amount of money for people who don't have money. Yeah. Like, yeah. People will get behind they the do. cause. They're, and they're the ones giving the money too. They'll get, but if you not say, the, not, yeah. not the millionaires. No. If you put a cause and said, hey guys, if they, if they had a, a global drive or a nationwide drive that said, hey guys, we need people who are making masks. It's like side businesses and people doing it for their families. We need approximately, you know, 5,000 masks a month to like give to our nursing staff and our doctors and people working in hospitals. We can give you some kind of tax credit for it based on how many you give us. Um, and then once we get them, like we'll actually like sanitize them and all that. So even if you made them and you had it, we can like spray them down or whatever we have. And, you know, we just let's band together the country and make masks and try to provide for our people. I think they would get more than they think they will get. A lot of people have sewing kits. It's not hard to get material. Go to Joanne or Michael's yeah. and they can just be basic black, blue, white masks. You can, yeah, some people put their own initials and stuff in it, whatever. Yeah. If you just said as a nation, let's band together. Like if you guys are going to buy hundreds of masks at a time, cool. But let's at least make it so that the people who need them the most have them. I think you'll be surprised how many people are just like, just making them. They'll make 10, 15 a day. By the end of the month, it's like, hey, I'm sending my 50 to my local hospital. Here's my 25 to this place. And they do that. They'll be more than overstaffed. They'll be more than fine. A few companies that did do that here in California. But this, but why are we doing this on a nation? Instead of certain generals saying, don't wear masks, why isn't it, why don't we make masks to replace the lack of supply we have? Yeah. Like I'm saying like, but that's, but instead of being truthful with the people, the attempt was let's deceive the people on some Gulf of Tonkin kind of stuff, get into what we want to get into and then be like, oh yeah, sorry about that deception. We just needed to do this. It's like, just tell us the truth. I think people are cool with the truth at a point because it makes sense. At a like, point. At a point. Not all, not all truth is universal. Don't tell all the truth. Hey guys, we're out of money. Like that's not the truth we need to hear. <laughs> it's just like, we're in too much debt. That's too much truth. But the truth about like, hey man, like I think the mass thing is the easiest example because it was an obvious lie that made a lot of people say, well, because now people use that certain general report to now currently not want to wear masks. So that lie mm -hmm. is now leading to rebellion. Because people are like, well, I don't need to wear a mask. You told me two and months ago that wild. it made me sick. And it's just wild. There's so many more cases now. And yeah. I just, people are refusing. They feel like it's against their rights, their individual rights to be forced to wear a mask. I just, I just don't agree. It's not, we don't care about each other like that. We only care about our own individual rights, even if it's, you know, going to be transmitted, you're going to transmit it to other people and they're going to be more vulnerable and sick. Like it doesn't matter to people. We care about rights as far as, from what I can tell from my observation, we care about rights and tragedy. And so we will sacrifice rights and liberties if we think it will keep us safe. Because again, that's a fear thing. Look, the easiest example is the airport. The airport, pre-9-11, you can kind of do whatever you want. You're walking through, people got switchblades in their pockets. Yeah. You have yeah. drinks in your hand. You can do whatever you wanted. And then once 9-11 happened, it's like, nah, we cutting all that out. Shoes mm -hmm. off. Throw that bottle away. Take that laptop out. We doing everything. And this has been 20 years now. 9-11 was in all one. 
this is pretty much 20 years deep. Yeah. We just got used to it. We know what to do. We show up in sweatpants and flip-flops, put them on a mm-hmm. little belt, iPad out. We just push it through. I never see yeah. people make a scene in the airport because they'll get shot. We yeah. just do it. We know what it is. Like, let me get to the airport 20 minutes early because the check is going to be longer. But we just gave up the right to just like free-flowingly go to the airport. We just did it. We let the Patriot Act be a thing where they can listen to phone calls and emails and all that kind of stuff and read emails because it was like, well, if we can find someone who possibly National is a security. terrorist, yeah. if we find someone who's possibly a terrorist through this, then that's cool. Read my emails, which obviously is in, in violation of the First Amendment, but whatever. We just was like, doesn't matter. I'd rather you read my emails and listen to my phone calls than we possibly be attacked again. We just gave it up. We gave up airport. We gave up this. Even speed limits are whatever. Like people, a lot of people don't follow them, but it's like, you know what? I'll keep it around 75. I'll go 80, whatever. Yeah. We just kind of, we will follow new rules if rules are put in place that we feel like will keep us safe. In this case, people feel like this is a political movement more than they feel like this is a health thing. And that's why I think people are in, like in so opposition to it. It's so, so strange how it has become a bipartisan issue. How does a disease, a pandemic, become a bipartisan issue? Instead of uniting the country, it becomes divisive again. We're in an election year. I said this on a pod probably two or three episodes ago, where maybe I just said this in real life, that I think we're going to find out. Because <laughs> <laughs> like I said, these conversations kind of bleed into each other. <laughs> and the election is what, like the 7th or 8th of November? I think we're going to find out on like the 9th or 10th the truth of all the numbers and all that stuff. Once the election is over and we know who the winners are, whatever, whatever, we're going to get the, the real unvarnished truth from like newspapers, from editorials, from people who's on deep dive investigation. Cause right now we have two different information sources and it's, and it's, and it's obvious both sides are inflating on both sides. Like we want to make it the worst thing ever to discredit the president. We want to make it seem like it's not bad to embolden the president and make it seem like they're against us. They're obviously both doing that. And anybody who's watching it can just look at the numbers. It's like, you see charts doing all types of like fancy stuff and people are opening up, but it's like how you open up, whatever. I think once the election is done, no matter how, which way it goes, the truth is gonna come out. And once the truth comes out, then we'll move forward, but we won't get any truth between now and the election. Will That's we a, have a vaccine by then? And how many people will use it? <laughs> there, there will be something that people That's are what taking. I'm waiting for. There will be something that people are taking, but vaccines take usually a year to 18 months to like be fully functional. So to have a vaccine yeah. within like eight months is scientifically dangerous because we don't know long-term effects and all that yeah. stuff. But because people are so, people are so fearful, we'll go back to the fear thing. People are so scared. They'll take whatever they say, this will cure it. Just so they feel more at ease about it. And we don't know what the long-term effects of that are going to be. And so I think there'll be some kind of treatment before the election. Whether it's real or not, who knows? I know they're putting unreasonable amounts of money into it. Every, because I watch the stock market, every pharmaceutical every, company, everyone. I'm on it. Every pharmaceutical company from Johnson & Johnson down the line, people you never heard of who are Quarters. selling their stock for $1 a share are getting millions of dollars put into them. Because the people who put the millions up front say, give me some of that back end. The back end is multi-trillions of dollars that we got to sell this to the world. Yeah. So I'll give you 10 million, but I may make 150 million on the back side of this. So people are fine with all this. So there will be something on the market. 
but it's but we don't know if that's even legitimate we just don't know what the truth is and neither side has an incentive to tell us the actual truth because both sides want power and so because power and money are like this you follow the money you follow the power that's where the conversation is it's in every it's in nancy pelosi's best interest to say the worst thing ever and it's in trump and pence's best thing to be like we're still doing rallies we're still traveling the country i'm not sick so we must not be a thing it's in they're both doing what they're supposed to do they're both the hero and villain of their own story so i don't have a opinion either way i think the truth is somewhere in the middle but we won't know the truth until the election's over because the election is really the divisive factor for every decision for the rest of the year that's how i see it yeah well we're gonna have to wait and see yeah, if people yeah. vote if people come out to vote well then. you know but that's a, that's another conversation too like how many yeah. people can because voting lines get long how many people can be in one area to vote a hundred percent the the voter suppression and the gerrymandering the the documentary that really was helpful for me really concise was on amazon prime i know people are boycotting amazon right now but um, it's they, called people keep saying Selma. that. They keep saying that. And Jeff Bezos is but by far the richest guy in the world. Jeff <laughs> Bezos know. is worth well over $100 billion. And that's after a divorce. And it's people keep telling me, the people keep telling me, I'm boycotting. I'm like, you're not. Because he gets richer. Amazon made up. They went up like 20% during the quarantine. Stop it. I know. <laughs> they yeah. do it just fine. But yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm looking forward to... I like what well, I like seeing it from the outside. That's the thing. Like if you're entrenched in it, then maybe it sucks because you feel like you're punching and getting punched in the face, whatever. I'm watching this. I'm trying to be objective about what this is on the outside. The stock market always bounces back. That's the nature of the market. I'm not worried about the market long-term. Even if it crashes for a short time, it bounces back. That's just what the market does. That's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and companies that go out of business, probably some of them have fraudulent books in the first place and they really weren't making a lot of money. And so <laughs> it's true. Like, let's just be honest. Like Cheesecake Factory was trying to shut down. They, they tried to stop paying rent two weeks into their company. I'm like, how you stop paying rent two weeks into the quarantine? <laughs> You're Cheesecake Factory. You can't do that. I'm but, sorry. You go. So the, and the businesses, again, it's always money. Businesses are threatening to shut down to then get bailouts so they can use their money to then buy back their own stock and then pay out dividends to their shareholders on the guise of we're about to shut down. Mm-hmm. And so they can use that money and flip it and do what they want to do with it because they're still paying out bonuses. So it's like, yeah. it's, it's always money stuff. But we're going to wrap up here uh, because we got into a nice little spirit of conversation. I feel like we- Yeah, I appreciate um, it. Juju, this is fun. I always want to, I feel like there's so much more we could have got into, but we could, we kind of got into the political bag at the end. And this really isn't a political pod at all. We almost never talk about politics. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way, well, you know, it's the way the convo went, but just like I said, I try to be nuanced. I want to be nuanced and even how we approach it. Cause I don't want this to be where, or at least I'm all bashing this side, all bigging up this side. Cause I honestly think there is, this, I actually believe politics is on a spectrum. I don't think it's like enemies. I think they're just, I think they're actually a lot closer. I think the middle is like the person who can be swayed either way. And I think the parties are here. I think what gets the news is this part of it. The parts on the outside, the people who are 
right it's like like during a protest the people who are rioting get the news the mm-hmm. people who are peacefully protesting don't just like the people who were like you know every baby is sacred don't kill any baby if you have an abortion waiting outside your door with a sign you're going to hell and then people in the middle who are like if you're 16 and got raped and got an abortion i get it you know what i'm saying like i think those that's where like if you're doing a standard deviation right it's like 67 percent of people i think that's where most people are that's where politics are i think that's where it lives and then but that's not money there's no money in peaceful protests there's no money in like a republican saying you know what guys like maybe they have maybe there's some some real racial strife in the country let's talk about the issues the, the, what makes money is, there is money in policies though there's money in policies but the, again we don't people don't this i'll talk about the news money the news makes money from sensationalism that's where their money comes yeah. from so it's got to be they beat up this woman at target and looted thousands of dollars that's what makes money and then this side is you know watch out black lives matter wants to take your houses and give it to people as reparations that's where the news is that's where the money is the truth yeah. is in the middle which is legislation like the air Gardner act like we're not going to have police choking people out anymore that that happened like two weeks ago that story just kind of like that didn't get any kind of traction even though like that's real policy because there's no money in that it's not sensational it's just a step in the right direction people want the opposite they want the police chief standing outside I'm proud to be a cop. Y'all are pressing us as police officers. And people are like, what? Like, that's what the news is. It's not the police officers who are saying, yeah, man, like, there's a blue code. And I've worked with people who I know aren't the best cops, but, you know, we haven't had the right to talk about it. That's where I think most people are. That's just not what we get Mm -hmm. to talk about. And so I think politics are the same way. I really don't think there's a giant difference between, like, President Bush and Obama for the most part. I think they're more or less in the same, they're the same dude. I think they both think they're doing the right thing. They're just trying to like appease it on both sides. I don't think either one's extreme, but then you do get the extreme versions of it where people think Bernie is extreme on one side. And then like, I guess Trump will be because extreme on this side. And that's where the press is. So that's why I don't believe in this. I'm going to completely bash one side, completely exonerate one side because I think they're actually fairly aligned except like on the margins where it's like how money is appropriated and that kind of stuff where that's where it gets a little dicey. I don't know if you want to say anything. No, I'm listening. It just broke up at the end, but I heard you. I think your point is about it not being so clear cut is important. And I think the fact that it's so bipartisan that there's so there's a, such a strong divide in the country on every topic, even the pandemic yeah. um, is definitely problematic. I think it's going to be something we're going to have to keep working through, figure out as a country, as small groups for several years. Where do you think this is going to end? Because now I think this is actually one question I wanted to end the podcast with anyway. Mm-hmm. So see, you, you pull them back in. What do you think? You think this movement now is a blip, or do you think this is, I guess, the beginning of the quote-unquote revolution going forward? I think that there is potential for systemic change to happen. I think that it will take a lot of work, and it will still take a lot of time. There's so many layers to this 
because mm-hmm. of our our nation's history, because of how complex our diversity really is in this country. Um, we really have to work within institutions themselves. Like, you know, like I was talking about my school, we have to work to uh, decolonize and like, yeah. and really transform our practices so that they are in solidarity with all people and that it is really truly equal. Um, but that's one school and that takes a lot of work. And we have to talk about all these other schools, all these other institutions, these corporations, these states, and it's going to take a lot of work. I really am hopeful. I think that's the only place we can be is hopeful. Um, And we'll see. I mean, (laughs) I think, I, I think that our history has shown us that racism and systemic race systemic racism will find another reiteration sure i'm hoping that that's not the case but you know we've seen our history and i think people have been publishing it a lot um so i hope that's not the case but we'll see i I think it's just going to take a lot of work i think you're right i actually have faith in the younger generation i think this sounds bad maybe on his face i think some of the older generation has to like die off and that can be metaphorical or like actually like peripheral or maybe just lose lose power or don't have such a centralized voice in conversations like there's other ways to to die off yeah that's what i'm saying, I'm saying die off meaning like <laughs> even like even like in leadership that may be like yeah yeah that's the 100%. most practical way but maybe like literally just not be here because i think the younger generation if you're 16 years old now, you grew up in Instagram, Twitter, I guess now TikTok or whatever. I don't think a lot of young kids have those those racist things because there's so much inbreeding and there's so not inbreeding, hybriding. There's so much like multicultural stuff going on. And it's so and they're so like entrepreneurial and look at me because like they always have a, a camera. I didn't have a phone so I went to college. These kids yeah. have had a phone since they were five years old. So they've always yeah. been they know so much stuff. Is at the tip of their fingers. I think this young generation, let's say if you're 16, by the time they're 30, I think they're going to start reshaping things the way they want it. I think we're probably not far from having a socialist as a president from, for that reason, because 30-year-olds, because 14, 15-year-olds have been given everything because they don't have a job. <laughs> they don't know what it's like to like earn anything because they're in high school. They're children. And they're like, this is great. I like like having stuff. And they're going to like, I think free college is a thing they're going to be pushing for. And and yeah, then they, they're gonna push all that stuff through. Yeah, we missed that boat. You missed it. It's fine, whatever. <laughs> but I think they're gonna push all that stuff through. I think they're gonna push free love and LGBTQ. All like it's gonna just all that's gonna be at the forefront because that's what their life is. And because they're so, they're they go hard, man. They go hard in our generation. These kids are fifteen year olds out here protesting for eight to ten hours. They postmating foods to themselves during the process. Know, that's the most gangster thing I've ever heard in my they're life. They're all out there. They're all out there. They're out there with their little Gatorade bottles and postmates. <laughs> Is that my Chipotle? Down with oppression. Like these guys are gangsters. <laughs> they're doing it the right way. And I think once yeah, they get it. a seat at the table, I think they're going to take over the table. And I think they will, they will put stuff through. I don't think it's the 70, 75 year old, like reform people who are going to start making the moves. I think those people will be voted out or just, kind of 86th and it's going to be a bunch of like 30 to the 40 year old CEO type people who are like, Hey guys, 
Like I'm half Filipino, half Mexican. We're not doing this. <laughs> Look, I'm gonna show, we're gonna fill this room out with some color, all right? And we're gonna make some moves and they're gonna just start doing stuff and they're gonna push their agendas through. And yeah. I think, so like you said sometime, I think we're 15, 20 years away from a drastically different society. There will be pockets of people who still harbor resentment and that kind of stuff, but they just will be drowned out. They won't have the platform maybe for Twitter or YouTube, like censorship purposes, or they'll just be such in a minority that people just aren't hearing them. But that whole, you know, white power or, you know, like all that stuff, I think that's, I think that's out of here. So that's my opinion on that. So optimistic like you are, yeah. But I think more practically, the young kids are going to push it through. We have to be. Somebody has to be. We got to be. We got to be. <laughs> but thank you guys for tuning in to Unofficial Therapy Podcast. Jaren, you were awesome today. I think you. It's been dope. Thank you for having me. You dropped a lot of wisdoms and uh, gave us a nice try. perspective that we, don't, we haven't had in the pod in a while. So I appreciate thank you. when you brought it. As always, you can catch us on YouTube, on the Unofficial Therapy Podcast channel, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We're all over now. Follow, like, repost, all that good stuff. Thanks for the support. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye.